Welcome to another episode in the series of podcasts, 168 Things, where we talk about all things creative and marketing, and creative life in general. This morning we're going to focus on Chalice, and the reason we're going to do that is because she's got a lot of things to talk about this morning, but in particular, she's going to talk about the book that she has started writing. Good morning, Chalice. Hello, Paul. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. That's good to hear. So, you're writing a book? I am writing a book. Uh, I should disclose right away, I've read what you've written so far. Listeners, it's fantastic. You're going to love it. Um, But why, Chalice? Why did you decide to write a book? It's the first one that you've written, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, I felt that there is a reader type based, I guess, on who I am. Okay, so what about your background? Where did you come from? So I was um, born in London, in Battersea, just off Battersea High Street. Yeah? What kind of house? Um, We didn't live in a house, Paul. We lived in a flat. So we lived in a council flat, which is on the eighth floor of a tower block. So uh, you, you had an estate? Yes, I had an estate. But not the type of estate where you'll see red trousers, Paul. <laughs> You're gonna, you are going to have to explain what you mean by red trousers. They certainly didn't reside in council estates. Nobody in council estates has ever been known to wear a pair of red trousers. Is that what you're telling us? They don't know red trousers. However, there are lots of red trousers in the business of marketing and advertising, the business that we've been in um, for all of our career. So do you wear, do you wear red trousers? I have never worn red trousers. And do I have you own no... red trousers, Paul? <laughs> I do not own red trousers, and I have no intention of ever. Wear... Much as I like the colour red, it doesn't belong on trousers, in my view. Interesting. But you, yeah, okay. So, but you know that by red trousers, I mean, um, forgive me, posh, middle-class people that... Mm-hmm frankly, are quite different from um, the background that I came from. Okay, you'd identify as what? I come from a large, um, very working class background where um, there was a lot of banter, very hard working. But what what did your mum and dad do? My dad was a builder, so... um, he was a carpenter, but he was a master builder. My mum, and she was a, a seamstress, and she was a postie. She had a number of different jobs, but not what I would call a career. And back in, you know, I'm saying back in those days, it wasn't that long ago, but certainly um, <laughs> <laughs> when I grew up, yeah, um, women in red trousers definitely had careers. But in um, in working class families, you might have a job for life, but often you kind of don't call it a career. You, you just go to work. Um, and some of the, you know, I'll use some of the tone of voice that my dad kind of uh, would use and some of the language that he would use. But he had the gift of the gabble, right, my dad? He was a very good looking and very charming man and really quick witted and a lot of people that have worked with me and know me well will know that um, I work incredibly hard. But, you know, having a good time whilst we do that is is important. And that's part of the, you know, my dad was full of positivity and 
had to find solutions to difficult situations in his work. And he definitely instilled a lot of that in me. Yeah, I can see that. But um, also, I think I'm right in saying that he taught you quite a lot about uh, independence. Yes, he did. Yeah. Well, I was the only child until I was uh, almost eight. Um, And my parents both worked. So they packed me off and I'd uh, go not too far away in Battersea and stay with my grandmother Hmm. or my, my grandparents. And they were very keen that... Um, I'd kind of be able to look after myself. And at a very young age, I was allowed to go out and play and do things, which now you'd never let your kids do. But yes. But um, staying, staying, hang on, uh, staying with your dad for a minute, mm. what did your father tell you would be a good rule in life? He would, my dad would say, you've got to stand your own, on your own two feet and never ask nobody for nothing. Right. Never ask nobody for nothing. Yeah. Then we, he would say, and never need for nothing. Make sure you can put your own roof over your own head and feed yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you'll never need for nothing. But it all went um, back to the fact that you had to work hard. You had to put the, the hours in and you had to have goals and achieve your goals. Um, sure. I get that, I, which I think are great things to talk to a child about. But I think there's a very much more particular thing here, which is we're talking about the 70s, not mm-hmm. necessarily, uh, you know, gender equality, equality was further off then than it is now even. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly girls were not always encouraged by other people or their parents to be independent. But you were. Yes, I was. I was incredibly independent and apparently at the age of three I took myself to the corner shop um, to do my mum's shopping. So she um, wanted to go herself but I insisted that I go for her. So she gave me a list. I had um, a shopping basket and I went down in the lift on my own and then she followed me down in the lift and and, uh, followed me to the shop but apparently I didn't look back she walked into the shop and I was busy telling the corner shop man what to get me and what I needed and there was no fear um but she she made sure that I didn't see her apparently because she wanted me to have that sense of doing it all on my own um so she followed me back and I didn't see her but at the lift because we had to go up in a lift she realised that she'd have to reveal that she was there because there was a bit of a flaw, which was I couldn't reach the buttons. So <laughs> <laughs> so she pressed the buttons and took me back upstairs and I was very chuffed. So as a three-year-old, you struck out on your own to the corner shop, three or four yeah. minutes away from the house, with your mother hiding in the bushes, spying exactly. on you to make sure that you came to no harm. But, yeah. but good for her for not stopping you. Absolutely. And uh, good for her also for realising you wouldn't be able to get back. You'd still be at the bottom of that lift shaft now. So apparently I was very independent, strong-willed and confident, even from a very young age. And um, yeah, with that, I was also taught to work hard. So they put me out to work literally at the age of eight. Right. And um, I had my first job 
as a cleaner, no less. So I worked with a very close friend of mine, Denise. We're both eight years old. And we trotted down um, the hill because we moved then um, to near Wimbledon Common to Southfields. We trotted down the hill to Auntie's house and work all morning on a Saturday morning for £5. And in those days, £5 was a lot of money. Yeah. And we loved our job because we got a sense of achievement. And that is as important as the financial reward for working, having a great sense of achievement. And... Um, we were able to save up for things that, frankly, our parents couldn't have afforded to have, um, have shelled out for. So that worked well. And also we were taught that if you worked hard, you would be um, rewarded in the form of a bonus. So ever so often, auntie would give, a, give us a bonus for doing extra jobs and take us to the market in Putney and let us choose something extra. So we got really smart, worked quick. And we're always striving for the bonus on top of whatever we were earning. And yeah, that's definitely stuck with me. So you were being encouraged by your father and your mother to strike out on your own, go and earn some money, look after yourself. Crucially, do not be dependent on other people. And I think when you're talking to a girl as a parent, Mm -hmm. I I have three daughters, uh, so I can relate to this. When you talk to them, you're, what you're basically saying is do not make yourself dependent on a man. Absolutely. Yeah. Be, that, that be was, your own boss. Be your own woman. Be your own boss. Get your own things. And, yeah, I did that. I had um, I had no concept of what I wanted to do when I went to secondary school. So I went to a big comprehensive school in southwest London. Yeah. And it was brilliant, very multicultural. It was mixed. You know, there was, there was, um, a, it was a good school, but it would never be regarded as the place where, you know, you'd say that you've been like Rodin or Putney High, for example. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was a good school. And I, if I'm entirely honest, school wasn't something that particularly interested me. So as, as soon as I learned about bunking off, I'd do as much as I could, as quickly as I could and do as much as I could not to have to go back to school. So I left at the age of 16 and got myself my first proper job. And what was that? Well, I had two jobs. So I had a little job um, in what my dad called Yuppie magazine, which was called Southside, and it was all about the local businesses on Northcote High Street and on St John's Hill. Magazine for red red trousers. Total and utter red trousers magazine. And then they bought another one out for Westside. Again, more red trousers, only in different areas. And that was great. And I was just kind of an office admin. Um, And then I got my first agency job in a pharmaceutical agency. And there I um, helped as an admin, but also as a studio assistant. And I realised pretty quickly that the area that I was most interested in was uh, production and creating great ads wasn't always the easiest environment for somebody like me to be in. I can imagine not. I mean, I, it's true to say that um, it's still a problem in marketing and advertising that there's not enough diversity and we're talking about uh, social class and we're talking about ethnicity and all manner of other things. I would say that marketing agencies in, on the whole have had 
a very large proportion of, of women in there, but not necessarily in the senior management positions. I think uh, that's probably changed and is changing. Let's hope so. But uh, mm-hmm. but but the social class thing is interesting, isn't it? Because I would say, on the whole, people with your working class background were generally confined to particular kind of jobs within yeah. the agencies. Absolutely. So we um, we're often in the production department, and frankly, the production department would be in the basement if they could hide us in a basement if they had one, or in a in a part of the building which um, certainly was separated from the ivory tower. But yeah. that that's changed, you know. Now with agile working and um, with being in clients' offices, that has changed. We've definitely been allowed to come out of the basement but um, I started in production (laughs) and I've worked in creative agencies as well as in production agencies and actually in production when I started my career there were far more um, working class people there was a good mix of red trousers and working class in production departments and I've had some great times in production but I think my work ethos and just the way I, my positivity and the way I want to help others achieve their goals and help businesses reach their vision, um, I've, I've thrived well despite my kind of working class background. And well, you, know, you say, I'm proud of all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you say despite. I'm not sure if despite is the right word because what you've said about your father, and I think there's quite a lot more we could say about your dad, um, but he clearly encouraged you and pushed you to fulfill yourself so the working class background was in a way yep disadvantage in all the obvious ways but it gave you some values that you've held true to throughout your career I would say absolutely so I figured out at a very um, young age how to define my own personal goals and what I wanted as a person and I set out to achieve my um, my goals and to be really clear what that meant was yes there was a financial reward and I I had my own roof over my own head at the age of 18 I bought my first property at the age of 18. Um, oh, very impressive <laughs> very impressive. But it was about a sense of achievement and it was about doing things that I really enjoyed doing and for me that meant creating pr- some pretty cool marketing and advertising campaigns that's what I wanted to do. And then in my personal life, mm-hmm. I wanted to have the freedom to enjoy my hobbies and to achieve um, my my dreams around what I wanted to do outside of work. And, you know, it's that everybody that knows me knows that for years I've been into sailing um, and I've had my own boat for a number of years. And I always aspired to being a great skier. I famously bought a pair of very expensive, a thousand pound pair of ski boots because I thought the ski boots were going to improve the <laughs> performance. But did they? Did they? Eck? No, I've still got the boot. I can get down the slopes, but um, there's not much. There's not much style there. So there are things that I'm not good at. But on the whole, I strive to do things well and to do things to really high standards. I can uh, completely testify to that from working with you over many years. It's mm-hmm. interesting, though, that you have 
gone to work, you've chosen a profession that's dominated by middle-class white men. Mm. You've chosen as a hobby sailing, which is definitely dominated by middle-class white men. I mean, there are obviously some exceptions to that, but I think you'll agree that when you go out on the sailing boat, yes, th- there aren't too many female skippers. No, well, no, you- there aren't. We're in the minority, it's true. But you are one. Yes. Um, and I would, I, I've never been skiing, but I imagine also from what I've heard that it's, uh, there are certainly a lot of middle class people in the world of skiing, in particular in the expensive resorts that I happen to know you favour. Oh, yes, we do like a touch of verbier. So there you are, in, you're, you know, from the age of 16, thrust into this world. Mm. You, and you, everything you said is very positive. You're a very positive person, but you must have encountered. Uh, let's say, sexist and classist attitudes along the way that you've had to deal with? Oh, yeah, I've had plenty of that to deal with. So I've had lots of situations where in a boardroom um, I've been outnumbered by men. And on one occasion I remember walking into a sales meeting and I was the only woman. And I remember a guy saying to me, your tits look good this morning. And... (laughs) I'm laughing, but I'm laughing with him. That is, hang on. Can you imagine? But then I thought to myself, this morning, they always look good. What are you on about? You know, and then I thought, (laughs) what's going on here? I'm at work. I've I've got to remove myself. So, But what did you say to him? For the benefit of the young women listening to this podcast who want to know, how do you deal with that kind of, I mean, I would hope that no girl would ever be subjected to a comment like that. No, but not clearly, in, not in but these they are. Days. Yeah, well, really, they wouldn't. I bet you they have been. Mm. What did you say to him? I can't really remember what I said to him. You know, that's not true. You can remember. I can't remember, but it doesn't matter. I think what you said to him <laughs> was, what the fuck have my tits got to do with <laughs> Don't this? Don't say that, but I did. <laughs> what the fuck have they, my tits got to do with this sales meeting? Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, that <laughs> well, does demonstrate that even the softest, most positive-natured people have to stand up for themselves sometimes in a way well, that isn't too pleasant. That's you, is it? Mm. The soft. And then I and then I got up and walked out and yeah. walked back in again and sat right. down as if nothing happened. And did he apologise to you? Yes, he did. Quite right. Yeah, and actually we had a very good working relationship. You know, in the 80s and 90s, it you could come out with things, particularly in a production environment, that you wouldn't dream of saying now, and you have to be very careful now about lawsuits and all sorts, but yes. Yeah, but, but honestly, the reason why people don't say or are perhaps less inclined to say things like that is because women like you who... As you've described yourself, very soft and gentle, which is quite amusing. But women like you have stood up to men saying, basically coming out with sexist shit like that and called them on it. Yes. You know, what the fuck have my tits got to do with this sales meeting? Is a p- absolutely first-class reply. And any woman who's put in that position, I hope, would say the same. Oh, yeah. I could, I've got endless stories. I mean, another time I walked into... At a board meeting full of men, 
and one of the men just kind of sitting with his feet up on the table and we were about to discuss something that he did not want to broach. Mm-hmm. So it was a display of um, nonchalant kind of difficult behaviour. Mm. And I had to say to him, and it was difficult because he owned the company, but I had to say to him, if you don't take your feet off the table immediately, you can leave this meeting and not come back in. Right. You know, it's, it can be very difficult at times knowing how to deal with men when um, you know that they're being tricky towards you. Let's put it that way. But I know I've, I know this now. I've learned the hard way. Doesn't well, phase me. It sounds to me as though right from the start you knew that the only thing to do was to really call them out on it yeah. and face them down, which is quite right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so Anyway, all right. So listen. <laughs> we've got to the point in the uh, story of your life where you're out in the workplace. We'll pause there, if I may, and uh we'll pick this up another time because there's quite a lot to uh uh, there's quite a lot in what you said that I hope will be of interest to people, especially to girls and women going into the industry, but also to men who should pay attention to what happens if you step out of line in the presence of Chalice Croak. Of a, of a strong woman. <laughs> or any other strong woman. Or any woman. Come yes, on. Yes, indeed. Yes. Behave yourselves. <laughs> Play nicely. Treat them with respect. It's about playing nicely. Respect. Be respectful to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, and, play and nicely. Make, yeah, absolutely. Make room. Thank you, Chalice. That was great. Really good to talk to you this morning about all these things. And uh, good luck with the writing. I know it's actually hard and lonely work to write a book. It takes longer than you think. And uh, it drives you mad at times. But keep going. It's Thanks, definitely Paul. worth it. I really appreciate it. Great. All right. I'll see you soon. See you all soon. Bye. Bye. Now, I'm sure many of you, having listened to Chalice talking about her early life and career, will be eager to read the book that she is in the middle of writing. And you'll want to know when it might be published and when you can find it in all good bookshops. The answer is she is still working on it, but she's been delayed a little bit by having to go out and do some other kind of work. And as I can testify, Writing a book can take quite a long time, but she will get back to it, especially if she receives extra encouragement from you, dear listeners. So if you would like to hear more from her, we will record more podcasts about her her life and career, and also urge her to continue with the book and finish it off and get it published. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you'd like to hear more. And uh, in the meantime, we look forward to talking to you again soon. That was another episode in our series of podcasts, 168 Things. I do hope you enjoyed it. We're always open for communication. If you want to get in touch, please email us on 168things at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. See you again soon. Bye.